Welcome to this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. I am Stuart Blythe, a member of the faculty ADC and the Dean of Chapel. Here, you'll get a chance to hear perceptive and powerful sermons which were delivered by staff, faculty, students, alumni and guests as part of our weekly Wednesday Chapel services. straight into where we're going so it's always great to see how God does that or how Stuart does that (laughs) I was I was tempted when I started today to ask how many people you'd invited to play foosball this year Um, if you don't know what that refers to I'll just leave it there first sermon of the year anyway when we look about at this year in the last couple of years um, It's been a heavy couple of years, hasn't it? Um, If you're still with the project you were called to at the beginning of this strange time, congratulations. (laughs) You have persevered through pandemic, murder, fires and floods, conflict and mayhem. And I can imagine that you are ready to celebrate and surely you deserve a good celebration. Surely we all deserve a good celebration. As I look forward to celebrations of graduation, commissioning, celebrations of ministry, celebrations of our college accomplishments, of staff and faculty, and especially our students, I'm excited by the opportunity to praise God for all that he has done in your lives, in our lives, and to capture some of those moments of feasting and singing and praise. But if you're anything like me, You may well have more than a lingering note underneath all of it that is quite dark and nagging. And how can we celebrate when there's so much pain everywhere, when there are wars waging and people grieving, when tyranny rules and friends are experiencing the horrors of of conflict and ill health and all that those things bring? Doesn't it somehow seem frivolous to celebrate in the face of so much pain? Aren't we just ignoring what's going on with our brothers and sisters, especially those elsewhere? And aren't we denying the reality of their situation? I mean, maybe we should have a service of lament rather than celebration. And I wonder if the psalmist perhaps gives voice to some of these prayers of late. Psalm 42. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, 
a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully because the enemy oppresses me? As with a deadly wound in my body, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. In verses 1 to 3 of this psalm, the question at the end is asked, where is your God? And yet it starts with a sense of a longing for God. As the deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. But everyone's saying, but where are you? Where are you, God? I've been longing for you, wrestling with God. And the question, where is your God, perhaps for you, certainly for me, comes less from other people and more from within my own soul. Where are you? Where is my God? God, don't you see what's going on? Where are you? I'm not questioning that he exists. I'm wondering where he is. It comes even less than from other people, rises up as my internal protest for the longing of a God who seems so often not to come to our aid when we need him. And yet it turns quickly to this. These things I remember. Look what's remembered. Celebration is remembered. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festivals. So the question comes, then why are you downcast? Why are you disquieted? Hope in God, for I shall again praise like we did then when we celebrated. It's celebration in the midst of this. And then it turns back to how this memory of celebration cheers the psalmist. Don't be sad. Look, God has helped you before. God will help you again. You celebrated his goodness once. Let this be your food when times are tough. My soul is downcast, so I will remember. I will remember with determination, not frivolously or in shallow ways, but with depth with a depth that is reflected here. I don't you love the phrase, deep calls to deep? I don't, I don't do Hebrew, so I don't know what that is in Hebrew, but I love it in English. <laughs> deep calls to deep. And the spirit elicits a song, a prayer that recognizes God's abiding presence, even in the hurt, maybe especially in the hurt. But the inner tension and its accompanying dialogue for me in this psalm continue. Now, is it really me? Or not others who say, where is your God? I'm the one who says, why have you forgotten me? Or why have you forgotten whatever it is we're lifting up to God? While others continue to taunt me, questioning, how can there be a God while all this happens? The inner voice speaks to inner voice once again. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. You see, the memory of the experience of celebration and praise rises up a hope that it will happen again. It's a reminder, I think, that in the midst of trouble, our default is praise and celebration, not lament and grief. Though our grief seems to overwhelm, though disaster befalls, we're encouraged by remembering a time when things were different. 
And this is not a frivolous escape from reality, but a deep abiding knowledge that when we celebrate, we are putting out markers of God's goodness. We are beating the bounds of hope. We're reminding ourselves and others that we were created for flourishing and not for languishing. This is stubborn joy, that no matter how deep the lament, joy can simply not be ignored. During Lent, I usually follow the Biola Lenten devotionals. I don't know if anybody else does those. In addition to scripture and a response, they also offer a visual, a song, and a poem. If you can handle all of that. Some years are better than others, and they don't always hit the mark, <laughs> to be fair. But when they do, I have found them quite profound. And as I was thinking about this message and wrestling with this psalm and the reality of the world in which we live over recent days and weeks, one of the morning readings hit this theme head on for me in, in a very particular way. The poem for that particular day was by Jack Gilbert, A Brief for the Defense. I'm going to read it. It's a difficult poem in some ways, and yet very meaningful and helpful, I hope. He writes this, sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while someone in the village is very sick. There's laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in a tiny port looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning to hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. Referring to the poem, Dr. Philip Agen reflects on stubborn joy, and he writes this. He says, the orientation towards peace is not achieved by averting my gaze from the ruthless furnace of this world. That would be mere denial. Indeed, Gilbert in this poem presents suffering and wickedness as wholly and graphically inescapable. The poem's opening lines are an exhausted parade of misery, sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. His tone is impatient, verging on callous, and intensified by the seemingly bitter claim that we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. But he continues and presents bizarre images of laughter and joy in those places where suffering ought to have made joy impossible. The poem ends with a quiet conviction that no amount of evil and suffering can decisively erase beauty from the world or our lives. We must admit there will be music despite everything. 
Like the psalmist, the poet finds courage in the memory of delight, a summer dawn, a Bengal tiger, to hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. You see, for the poet, delight is like the desire of nostalgia. Well, for the psalmist, it's the delight of worship, unity with God, celebrating God's goodness. And they're both acknowledgments of long longing. The poet longs with desire for fleeting moments of delight that remind him of the goodness of life, without which suffering is denied any meaning. But the psalmist also longs after delight, but his delight is for communion with God. Only this will truly satisfy. And the psalmist longs with a deep thirst for these streams of God. And what does the psalm say God delivers? Waterfalls. God delivers waterfalls. And all of this, I think, calls us to celebrate. To celebrate when we can. Not because the suffering of others doesn't matter, but because it has to matter. Celebration not only points us with hope to the goodness of God, but also the proclamation that the devil does not have the last word. That evil is not the only tone echoed over the world. Celebration allows this to be challenged, and celebration encourages us to rise up and be counted against the calamity and death and evil that would seek to have sway. So I have been languishing under the surface these last several weeks. The war in Ukraine has been heavy for me, out of concern for friends and former students. The busyness of work helps to keep it in check, but it's there. The recent death of a dean of a seminary hit hard. His face looked so familiar, and I wondered if he was in a class I taught in Kiev in 2016. I came across another photo posted of him. He was surrounded by familiar faces. It's hard not to hurt for them all. But last night I was encouraged because I heard from Sergei, who leads a theological school in Kiev. I'd already done my sermon. I put it in. <laughs> I supervised his PhD in London. He is over 60, so he doesn't serve in the armed defense. But he's driving so supplies now from so Slovakia into Kiev. And last night, as I ran through my finished sermon, I received his latest round-robin letter. He was thanking us for our prayers and notes. Sorry for a long silence. I always check. I want to make sure he's still alive. <laughs> I have to be honest. And he says he can't write short texts about things so huge and heavy. But he says, um, although he's not been in, in imminent danger, I don't know how he measures that, but he said, what I, yet what I saw and experienced made me choke so many times from grief, anger, emptiness, feelings of loss and despair. However, I've also had many opportunities to be surprised by people's kindness, humility, self-giving, and sacrificial love that are shining much brighter now in these circumstances than ever before. He shared a couple of stories. One was about Irina, a next-door neighbor of his wife, also Irina, when they lived in Volgograd. They grew up in Russia together. And for the last 33 years, she lived in Cherniv, often spoke with my wife on the phone, and once or twice visited us in Kiev. Both Irina and my wife were Russians, both married Ukrainians, and both didn't know that the Russian army one day would bomb their Ukrainian neighborhoods. Two weeks ago, the situation in Cherniv became quite grim. I should say Sergei's wife, is in, she went out to Poland and is now in Slovakia. But, uh, but her friend is still there in Cherniv, and the situation became quite grim. The city was systematically bombed. The bridge connecting Cherniv with the highway to Kiev was, was destroyed, and the pedestrian bridge was also damaged. Those who made attempts to cross the bridge or to take the boat were shot. 
There was no water, heating, or food. I told my wife that I'll do whatever I can to save Irina from the Russians. When I came to Kiev with the first big truck of humanitarian help two weeks ago, this is a guy who, who runs a seminary, right? Anyway, um, it was unloaded in the storage of an organization that provides support for the territorial defense units. I had a chance to speak with one of the leaders of this organization, told him about my concern for Arena, and as a result, a special rescue operation was designed. We had to wait for the right time. About a week later, Irina, together with a few other people, was rescued by three CUVs that drove at crazy speed on a half-broken pedestrian bridge and through the open field to safety. I drove her and a family of other survivors from Kiev to Slovakia. On the way, Irina told me she wants to start a new life. We prayed together. We pray for her as she's making the first steps of faith. Celebration. God's goodness. New life. Indeed, delight in the middle of unimaginable despair. There was a picture in that same devotional that I was mentioning earlier. And in the picture um, is Aaron Douglas's Harriet Tubman mural. Again, Dr. Ajan reflects on the tensions between delight and despair. He writes, in this mural, the ugliness of slavery and its consequences are on full display. A plume of smoke curls from the muzzle of a Civil War cannon. Moving from the foreground to the background, the foliage of an African forest gives way to skyscrapers. That's on the far right of the picture. Towering like American pyramids. And in the center, the outline of a woman, perhaps Tubman, still holds the manacles that until recently held her. But they're held aloft by her free, exultant arms. And while the painting clearly asserts the horrors that helped transform Tubman into a hero, the artist doesn't dwell on them. Detail is exchanged for silhouettes seen through ripples and beams of light, one of which might be coming straight from heaven. We're invited to share a vision that proclaims light and joy in the midst of horror and sin. Ejen challenges us so that we have to choose to see it. I must raise my voice and kindle a stubborn determination to receive the joy and satisfaction that God offers, even when, or perhaps especially when, my path has brought me desolation and distress. Like the psalmist, in the conversation between me and my soul, I need to finally give in. Though I let my soul have its day, I acknowledge its tears, the grief, the pain, either my own or in solidarity with others. Eventually, I need to say, this grief is real, it has its say, but this grief does not have the last word. In John 16, there's also a dialogue going on, this one between Jesus and his disciples. He was telling them in the upper room that he was going to go away for a little while and come back, and they wouldn't see him, and then they would see him, and they were confused about what this would mean. And Jesus said, are you discussing among yourselves when I said that a little while and you'll no longer see me and then in a little while you will see me? Is he playing hide and seek? What's going on? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will be turned into joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. He had to explain this a little more to the disciples. 
things they wouldn't really understand until the Holy Spirit came. After the horror of execution, the mystery of resurrection, they could not understand all that would go on, but his encouragement they could understand. It was something they could remember when times got tough. I said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have conquered the world. We know God never promises a world free from pain or suffering or conflict. But God offers a solace in the midst and a hope that is worth, worth remembering. And in honest struggle with our downcast souls in a downcast world, we are called to remember God's goodness to us. And I think we remember it because we celebrate it. Soon we will be celebrating Easter. We'll be celebrating new life, even after so many pandemic deaths. Even as lives are being put to death. Our inner dialogue may well continue, but we will celebrate because it opens a door to us to experience peace and to become agents of peace because Jesus has overcome the world. We will celebrate because life and not death has the last word. So those of you who are completing your studies altogether and those of you who are completing this year of studies, for some of you, you will graduate next month. Celebrate. Celebrate. Celebrate fully and celebrate well. This is not a mere denial or escape. It's a declaration. Celebrate with deep joy and with delight and raise the banners and place the way markers. And let us celebrate not to pretend that all is well, but let us celebrate to declare that the enemy does not have the last word, neither in your life nor in the world. Commit yourself in that celebration to be a harbinger of hope, laboring for peace, for wholeness, and declaring his peace as you're sent out to serve. Celebrate today so that you can one day recall the goodness of God when you need it most as you serve as agents of life in a chaotic world marked with peril and disaster. Celebrate today to empower you to hope when you find yourself in deepest lament. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. Amen. Thank you for joining us in this Acadia Divinity College Chapel Podcast. You can follow us on social media. Discover more on our website at acadiadiv.ca or join us for chapel on a Wednesday.